Alan, thanks for taking the time. Uh, appreciate you spending the time with us here today. No, my pleasure. I was looking forward to our conversation. Yeah, no, I've I've been following you for a number of years as a high school basketball coach when I coached, and you've done basketball skill work for, I was just looking it up, it looks like around the last, fifth, for about 15 years, starting around 2000. Is that about right? That is correct. Nice. Your LinkedIn page did not mislead me. So <laughs> no, I try to keep it as updated and as accurate as possible. Right, and uh, I still remember a story like I was work- working with some coaches uh, back east. I'm, you know, I'm in Denver now, and we we're talking about bringing in a, like a, a, you know, like you know, you have your camps, you bring in the, the specialist, someone that, you know, a shooting coach, uh, you know, a skill development coach, and we we're talking like, why don't we bring in Alan Stein in? And I still remember one of the coaches going, he's just. You know, we know all the same stuff Alan does. He just knows how to market it well. And I was just there like, so shouldn't we have him talking to our players? Then clearly he's clear, better at telling our players than we are. <laughs> <If he's, laughs> so I'm excited to have you here. Um, tell me what you went from basketball skills coach to now motivational speaker, author. What What got you to make the jump? to a crowded field to an incredibly crowded field yeah you know i mean basketball was really my first identifiable passion and and i remember falling in love with the game at four or five years old and i'm incredibly thankful that here four decades later uh, it's still a major pillar in my life so uh you know having been a basketball player at the high school and then small college level and then to be able to make my living uh, as a performance coach and working with players and, and coaches and so forth for 15 years uh, was just a remarkable experience. And that'll always really be my bedrock and my foundation. Um, but after, you know, closing in on almost 20 years of doing that, uh, I just was ready for a change. I was ready to do something different. Uh, I felt that I had, uh, my interest had grown past just trying to help players run faster and jump higher and, and improve their their strength and mobility. And, and while I don't diminish that, that's still incredibly important, and I know how important that was to me when I was a player. Um, I just started to have much more of a fascination with leadership and performance and building habits and you know improving lines of communication and ways to build winning cultures. And I realized how fortunate I was to learn so many lessons and strategies in that domain uh, from some incredible players and coaches and just chose to, to kind of pivot uh, to this new, as you said, incredibly crowded market just to start sharing those ideas uh, in the business world and, and just to kind of refresh and jumpstart by aiming at a new audience. And, you know, I've been doing that for almost three years now. How's that been going for you? Blast. It's been going great. I mean, I, I absolutely love it. Um, you know, I'm still connected in the basketball world. I still do speak at some basketball events, uh, certainly a lot less often than I was doing before. But, you know, I'll always be truly indebted and have the utmost respect for coaches. Uh, you know, I think that's the, the definition of being a servant leader, and it's such an altruistic profession. And, and I believe in giving back, you know, to people that are helping young people. Um, so that will always have a, a huge place in my heart. So I still try to do some things in the basketball space, they're just now not on the training front. So I very rarely do anything that has to do with improving speed or athleticism or explosiveness. Everything now has to do with improving cohesion and culture and leadership. Um, And it's really, 
I mean, it's not that different of a message to share in the corporate world. I mean, there's yeah. nuances that need to be changed and, and, and ways to make it uh, directly apply and, and also need to be able to translate the, le- the message for those in the corporate world that don't follow basketball or aren't really into sports. That's totally okay because that's even though that's where my passion and my background lies, the most important part are the lessons and the principles. And those are the things that have the highest utility because they can be applied anywhere. So um, it's easy when I'm in in front of a a room full of people that love sports and love basketball, uh, but I really thrive on the challenge of translating that message to people that don't. So you're saying you don't throw tennis balls at sales leaders? I do not. No, not at present. And you know what's funny? I mean, I I know you were saying it kind of tongue-in-cheek, but, I mean, there really was a lot of truth to what that coach said. You know, Alan doesn't know anything that we don't know. And I, I, on some level, agree with that even now in the business world that uh, my main core belief is that we all need to get back to the basics and we all need to learn how to close the gap between what we know we should be doing and what we're currently doing. And everyone has a gap. Uh, The highest performers and highest achievers in the world have found ways to really narrow or or mitigate or even eliminate that gap in the most important areas of their life. So um, what I would say to that coach is, yes, you are correct. There's a good chance that I'm not going to share anything with you that you don't already know. However, I can almost guarantee you that you and your players are not doing everything that you know it's the same thing in these corporate talks i'll i'll do a full day training you know eight hours of fully immersive interactive uh training uh with a with a company and at the end of it i'll say now you realize i didn't tell you a single thing today that you didn't already know however we've come up with a pretty long list of things that you're not currently doing and that's the key is we have to start doing the things that we know yeah no it's funny where we always said the experts the guy that knows the same thing that's from out of town. <laughs> yeah, that's that's probably pretty accurate for sure. Because <laughs> he can come um, and say the but, things. But, you know, it's, this concept of the basics. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, the basics, they've always worked, and they always will work. And and I do realize that we we live in a culture and a society that that almost encourages us to skip over the basics and to circumvent the process. And, you know, is always telling us we need to be chasing what's new and what's flashy and what's hot and what's sexy, but the basics work. And it doesn't matter if you're talking about training, you know, I mean, pushes and push-ups and pull-ups and lunges and some basic movements still work and can get you incredibly fit. Uh, and same thing from a business standpoint. I mean, you know, uh, learning how to communicate effectively, learning to be a better active listener, you know, learning how to hold people accountable through, you know, through compassion and with empathy. I mean, these are all things that everybody inherently knows, but only the elite tend to do consistently. And what I found is um, that the reason most people skip over the basics uh, one, they just kind of roll their eyes and just take them for granted and feel like, oh, yeah, I've, I've already learned how to do that. Uh, but the other is they can occasionally get monotonous and mundane. And to me, that's what separates the best from the best is not getting bored with the basics and being able, you know, for a basketball player to go into the gym and for the first 15 to 20 minutes do the most basic footwork and to work on their shooting form, you know, and do that every single day. Didn't and you of have... course, gra- yeah, graduate and level up to more advanced stuff. Yeah. That's absolutely going to happen, but you can't leave the basics because otherwise you're, you're, 
you're you're pulling the stool out from underneath yourself. You're eroding your foundation when you stop doing the basics. So this is not about uh, being against more advanced versions or climbing and leveling up. Those are all things that we should be aspiring to do. You just can't leave the basics to do them. No, absolutely. Didn't you have a story with Kobe Bryant doing that when you had a chance to watch him work out? In your book. Yeah, I mean, I, I watched him at a very early morning workout and was just shocked at the fact that he spent a good deal of his time doing very basic movements. And, you know, what I really pulled from that was he did them at the highest level of intensity and he had razor sharp focus and precision. So he wasn't just kind of going through the motions and just saying, oh, yeah, I'm supposed to do the basics. Let me just kind of half ass it. I mean, he. He really he did those basics as, as if they mattered because they did. And the, the, the biggest lesson I pulled from that experience was, and this is something that all of us need to consistently remind ourselves of, is just because something's basic, it doesn't mean that it's easy. See, people treat those words like yeah, they're interchangeable, yeah. like they're synonyms, but they're not. You know, what it takes to run a successful business is very basic. I mean, to the point that I can explain it to my nine and seven-year-old children and they understand it. However, clearly, anyone listening to this uh, that's an entrepreneur or an executive or working in the corporate world knows that running a successful business is far from easy, yeah. but it's still basic. You know, I mean, think about the game of basketball. I mean, okay. that's obviously the red thread that ties you and I together. Okay. I mean, the game itself, if you break it down to the most basic component, the goal on offense is to take the highest percentage shot possible, and the goal on defense is to make your opponent take the lowest percentage shot possible. That's, in essence, the game of basketball. And if you can do those two things consistently, you will win almost every single game. And now you have to run everything that you do through that filter. So does this pass increase the chance that we're going to get a higher percentage shot or decrease it? It's an easy, it's a binary question. It's a yes yeah. or a no. If the answer is yes, then you make the pass. If the answer is no, then you don't. Is this shot right now, you know, a, a wide open, you know, shot from 10 feet with this player in this position and this time and score, is this the highest percentage shot we can get? If the answer is yes, then it should be taken. If the answer is no, that it shouldn't. Now, obviously, with a game like basketball, uh, these are decisions that have to be made in a split second. These are things that, you know, you don't get the time, the luxury to sit back and, and have several minutes to process it. So that's part of having a high basketball IQ. But if every time down you take the highest percentage shot that your team is capable of, and every time on defense you make them take the worst shot they can take, you will win. And that is the game of basketball. Absolutely. And it's the same thing in business. I mean, Simply deliver more in value with your product or service than you're asking for in payment and offer unbelievable support and, and customer service. If you just do those two things, you will have a thriving business. So then you have to ask yourself with every decision you make, is that what we're doing? Are we delivering more in value than we're asking for in payment? And are we giving exceptional ex customer experience? And if the answer is yes, I promise you, you are an incredibly profitable business. What companies right now do you think are doing that really well? You know, what's, what I found really fascinating, I mean, of course you've, we've got the obvious ones. You've got the Goliaths, you know, yeah. the Apples and the Nikes and the ones that all of us are aware of, and they, they do it at such a big level. And, and, and while it's easy to kind of take them for granted, it is important to realize 
where they all started. I mean, you're talking about Nike, a company that started in Phil Knight's trunk of his car right. as he's peddling shoes that he hand-stitched together. And, you know, obviously the the, the, the legendary story of, of Jobs and Wozniak basically starting Apple in their garage. So we have to remember that they weren't, they weren't born these elite Goliath companies. They started somewhere, and they understood the principles that I just shared, and they've stuck with those. And then, of course... Uh, Arguably, the hardest thing to do, at least in my opinion in business, is to scale. So it's one thing when you have a team of five and keeping everyone on the same page and communicating and being respectful. Well, how about when you have 5,000 yeah. or 50,000 people? Clearly, that goes back to the basic versus easy uh, dichotomy. But um, what I've really, really enjoyed in my work now in the corporate space is how many businesses are out there that you and I have never heard of, never heard of, that are run brilliantly, that they're serving a niche market, they have amazing products and services, they have tremendous customer experience and customer service, and they're very profitable, and they, I mean, they're doing a great job. And that's one of the cool things I think about, you know, living in, in America in this capitalistic society, that the vast majority of the most successful companies and the vast majority of self-made millionaires in this country are people that, that no one's heard of. They're, that, they're the guy next door. And, and I love stumbling across them and learning from them and seeing what they do to build such great businesses. It's, it's really fun. I, I've been exposed to some just tremendous companies and they've, you know, they've, they're on they're they're on par with a Nike or an Apple as far as how they run their organizations and the quality at which they do stuff. They just haven't scaled to that size, which is why you know they're they're not a household name. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think that's one of the great things just to watch is like I work in the oil and gas industry here now for the last year, where before that I worked in building products type stuff, and it's amazing to see all the different types of business and industries that you go that support each other and work off each other that. You never even knew existed, except like, and I live in Denver where everything is getting built up and you're all the yep. things that go into putting a project together. And it just, it's mind boggling that there's people in charge of this, like who would want that responsibility, but they, they take it on and they, they apparently do a great job with it. You, uh, yeah. And, well, it's, and it's not that different from coaching. I mean, clearly, you know, uh, if you follow basketball, you know, you're aware of, of Greg Popovich and you're aware of of Nick Nurse now and Steve Kerr or Coach K and Tom Izzo and John Calipari. Mm -hmm. uh, but you know as well as I do that there's uh, probably a, a coach uh, coaching a, a small-town team in, in a suburb of Mississippi that is an absolutely brilliant basketball coach that, that has true connection with their players, uh, knows the game and teaches the game, is an excellent role model. You know, they're as good a coach as anyone out there just no one's heard of them because they're at a smaller school or, or because of where they are. And, and that's another one. I mean, I loved meeting coaches like that. And, and I think in basketball, uh, people falsely assume that the level at which you coach is the determining factor on whether or not you're a good coach. And that's clearly not true because I have met division three head coaches that absolutely are as good as any division one coach I've ever met. They just choose to be at the division three level or same thing with high school and it's true in business. Uh, clearly, the people running, you know, Apple and, and Google and, and Microsoft, I mean, clearly they're good at what they do, but it doesn't necessarily mean they're better than someone that's running a small mom and pop shop in a, in a little town, but is doing so with equal 
you know, acumen and excellence. So mm-hmm. it, we have to be very careful uh, not to just anoint the biggest and the best as being better than anyone else because that's not always the case. No, absolutely. You you said something earlier that kind of ties in. I'm curious on how, how you would define it. How would you define, like you said the term earlier, servant leader? He's like, what would you give that as a definition? To say that say that again? Uh, the term servant leader. How would oh, you, servant how, leader. Yes, sir. You know, it, I do it more to expand the the connotation that one receives when they hear that because in essence it's a little bit redundant at least in my philosophy if you are a leader you are a servant so i I shouldn't have to say it but i use i I like to preface it with that because i i want to put so much emphasis on the serving part you know i i believe that as a leader uh you know let's just say in business you work for your people they don't work for you People, people often get that backward. They think because you're the CEO and you have 100 employees that you have 100 people that work for you, and I view that very differently. I, I view it as you have 100 people that you're working for mm-hmm. or at least working with and alongside. So uh, I like to put the emphasis on the servant part um, because it just reminds folks of what a leader should do. And while a leader absolutely has to have high self-care and they have to take care of themselves, they have to fill their own bucket so that they can be the best versions of themselves to fill into others. Being a leader is about serving others and empowering them and supporting them and assisting them and giving them the tools that they need to do their job to the best of their ability and to become the best versions of themselves. And the best leaders I've ever been around, uh, I mean, to a person, um, I can describe as someone that was a true servant. Incredible. What if when you uh, are learning more about these businesses, what's stuff that you take back that you go, boy, I'm going to imply that put this into my life and put this into work on on scale in my life or in your business? Oh, I mean, just so much stuff. That's one of the reasons that I get so excited um, being in this business space is not only uh, am I really enjoying sharing, you know, stories and concepts and lessons and principles. Uh, but everywhere I go, I'm just learning so much. And and it wasn't to say that I wasn't learning in basketball. It was just after 15 years, um, I had learned so much from so many players and coaches. I, I just felt like I, I wanted to enter a new pool where I was going to learn at an even more rapid rate. And that's, I mean, I love when I go speak at an event and I sit and I hear the other speakers. And sometimes they're not professional speakers. They're the CEO of the company or they're someone from HR or sales and just picking up little tidbits uh, on how they do things. And the neat part is very similar to basketball. I mean, and I say this with full humility, there really aren't any new ideas. I mean, I know there's new technologies coming out and there's things that are advancing forward. But, you know, for the most part, there's not any new ideas uh, I just love being able to hear someone's own personal twist on it or their own take or, or how they apply it. You know, that was one of my favorite parts being in basketball was not necessarily learning a new drill or an exercise, but learning a new way to communicate with a player or learning a new way to coach something or to, to be able to read a player's body language. You know, those nuances are what I found most fascinating. And, and same thing now in the business world. So uh, I love picking up new stuff. And then, you know, I believe as a leader, 
it's our job to to light other candles and to shine that light. And, and I've always said that, you know, a candle loses nothing by lighting another candle. So when I go here, uh, I go speak at an event and I hear something that I can add to my own arsenal or I learn something else, then I do my best that forward and share that with others, uh, either immediately on social media or then I integrate it into my work and give them proper credit, but then pay it forward. So uh, I think, too, it's, it's really important to always be open. And, you know, I have some foundational beliefs and some convictions that I hold very strongly, but certainly if someone were to convince me that there's another way that's better than my current beliefs, I'm not so stubborn that I wouldn't be open to change. So um, I'm always questioning what I believe and how I do things. And and my ultimate goal is simply just to be the best version of myself. Uh, so, um, you know, the, the beliefs that I hold very, you know, and core principles that I hold very dear now, uh, I didn't just come up with those yesterday. That's This is of a lifetime of of refining and reflecting and evaluating. Uh, but you better believe that if and when I come across something that makes more sense or is more effective and efficient than the way I'm currently doing things, I'm very open to change because I don't, I don't ever want to get stagnant. Uh, I know that as a human being, I will never be complete or finished, that I'll always be a work in progress. And I actually like that. To me, that's what makes life exciting and fun. It is a fun challenge with that. One of the, I was listening to your book. I got your, cause the raise your game book. It's, it's interesting. Like I used to do interviews years ago. You'd have to always have the book in front of you. And now it's all for me. It's all an audio book. So I was like, where's my note on that again? What page is that? <laughs> on? But like I was listening to it. My fiance was listening to, and she works in HR for a big tech company. And so she kind of rolled her eyes at one thing you said more or less. Cause a part of it was like, you mentioned it earlier is the scale. It's a lot of, it's when you have a basketball team of say, you know, at best 15 players and you know, you got five other coaches, maybe at best you got a team of 20 guys. It's, I won't say it's easy, but it's more – it's easier to keep everybody on the same page and focused on the same goal. We're Absolutely. Now, now when you take that and you go, okay, well, now we have a business of 100 people or 1,000 people or, like you said, 5,000. With the things that you preach and encourage, how do you – like how do you keep that scale and when you're trying to keep, you know, thousands of people on the same page and, you know, focus on the same goal versus 20 people? Well, there'd be two things. Uh, uh, one, I mean, I, I firmly believe that one of the definitions of a leader is someone that creates other leaders, is, mm-hmm. is someone that doesn't have to be the person that makes every decision, that you empower others. So um, let's just say on a basketball team, you have the ratio of one head coach for 15 players. Mm-hmm. Okay, and that's a very manageable and realistic uh, ratio. Well, if you're going to scale and now you have 150 employees, well, then you need to have 10 quote unquote people that are leaders that can still keep that type of ratio. So you'd have, and, and I'm not talking necessarily about an org chart. Mm-hmm. I'm just talking theoretically, you should have 10 people that are just as equipped as a leader that they can oversee and manage and support and empower the 15 people that they're closest with. Uh, because clearly, if, if you have 150 people working for you, I mean, there's just no way that you're going to have a personal touch with them every single day and that you're going to get to know them on a very personal and intimate level in everything that's going on in their life. That's just not realistic from a time or math standpoint. Yep. But there's no reason that those people shouldn't have someone in the company that does have a daily touch point with them that they report to and discuss things with that does know them on a personal level. Uh, so to me, it's, it's a leader's ability 
to create other leaders. And then, then it's, that's how you scale. So clearly if you have 5,000 employees, then you better have a whole gang of leaders. And, and a leader, this has nothing to do with a position. So I'm not saying that if you have 150 people in your company, you have to have you know 15 managers that each was, you know. No, I'm just talking theoretically. You have to have enough people that view themselves as a leader that wants to take on the responsibility of of you know, modeling and holding everyone accountable to the company culture and doing those things. So it's kind of like, can we replicate the head coach? Can we create 15 other head coaches to help us manage this growing workforce? And then the other is you have to realize that little things make a big difference. Uh, and this is true both in the positive and the negative. So one of the problems with scaling or one of the hardest challenges with scaling is things get diluted very quickly. Uh, it's easy to, well, easier to hold 15 people accountable to your standards of excellence and, and to maintain that culture. Well, then you start multiplying that and adding zeros and you have 150 people and then 15,000 people. Uh, it makes that much more challenging. And what tends to happen is uh, people think, and it gets eroded very quickly because they think these little things aren't important. Like, uh, you know, we have 15,000 employees one person's late for a staff meeting, it's really not that big of a deal. Well, if you only had 15 people on your team, I mean, I can tell you from the basketball teams I worked okay. with, if one, if one teammate showed up late to a film session, that's unacceptable. Like, that is a problem. You're not going to show up late, you know, and we have to have that same mindset. So when you look at the numbers and go, you know, we have so many people, it's not a big deal if they do this or it's not a big deal if they do that. That's how things quickly erode. So you have to keep your standards of excellence and your accountability uh, the same if you have 150 or 1,500 or 15,000 employees. You need to treat everything as if you still had 15 and then try to create that same tight-knit family-type atmosphere. And, and once again, I'm saying all of this in a very matter-of-fact tone. That is so challenging to do. It is so hard to be able to uh, have standards and hold everyone accountable to, you know, when you have in the hundreds or thousands of people. But mm -hmm. uh, I've noticed that one of the best tools, and this kind of puts a bow tie on both of these, these ways to get it done, is you can't just have vertical accountability. You have to also have horizontal accountability. You need to create a culture where those 15,000 employees, they all hold each other accountable. They're not waiting for a manager to walk in and say, hey, you know, that report was late or, hey, you didn't do this. They're doing that to each other, and they're doing it with grace and love and compassion because they want what's best for their teammate and they want what's best for the organization. So if you and I happen to be two employees in a 15,000-employee company, and I see you, even though we're friends, I see you stepping out of bounds and not living up to the standards we've created – I'm going to care enough about you and I'm going to care enough about our company that I'm going to say something. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to run the risk that it's going to get lost in the, the sea of trees because no one's going to see it happening. If I see it happening, then I need to be able to step in and, and police that, but not do it in a way that I'm trying to bust your chops or I'm trying to diminish you or drag you down. Do it through love and compassion and like, you know, hey, Rob, I, I care about you and I care about this company. And I notice that you're consistently late to meetings. You can't do that, man. That's that's just not what we're about here. And if everyone can police each other and you have 15,000 people holding each other accountable with grace and compassion, 
now you've got something really, really special. All right, now you got. I got a question. I'm gonna hit at parties for questions like this. Um, is because it sounds like you have a. It's a very Christian worldview in a sense of how you're saying and how you should supposed to handle things. I'm saying every Christian does it that way, but that's how you know the Bible teaches it. Is you know approach people with grace and love, things like that. Is there influence of that in your life, or is this just sort of a coincidental parallel? I would say it's a coincidental parallel. Yeah, that that is actually not uh, an influence in my life, but uh, I do think that regardless you know, of one's religious beliefs or political beliefs or life perspective, there's just always going to be a, a foundation of handful of principles and things that, that just unite us as human beings. And, you know, I know some people's behavior is actually uh, in opposition to this, but you'd be hard-pressed to find anyone that believes that approaching others with love and compassion and grace and empathy is a better way to go, is, is a better way, you know, to approach others with tolerance and kindness, you know, whether or not that's in the Bible or not, whether or not that's part of a company's mission statement or not, is almost irrelevant, because those are just human conditions and human principles that I think we all intuitively and innately know we should be living, you know, by those codes. So um, that's what I always find fascinating. So to me, what's most important is that people do adopt those philosophies and do live their lives that way. And if they gain inspiration from that uh, through religion and faith and through the Bible, that's wonderful. If they draw inspiration from somewhere else and they're still able to live those values and, and be a contributor to society and be a kind, loving person, then it, to me it, it doesn't matter where it comes from. It just matters that that's the behavior. Uh, um, I, I saw something on, I can't remember which, probably LinkedIn or Twitter. I can't keep track but you were at a uh, Myrtle Beach the other week with your family. And, yes. And you that's, took and you that's tried. Where my parents live. Oh, nice! I'm actually heading up to Sunset Beach, just north of there, in about a week. Um, oh, cool. Yeah, and you got your kids to work out. The, like this, it was like the second or third day. I didn't keep track of the whole story, but where you were just trying to model, hey, let's go work out, let's go for a run, whatever the workout was. How did that work out? Yeah, you know, one of my my core parenting beliefs is. Um, and you have three I kids, right? What are their ages? Just for I people. Do. That... I have uh, I have nine year old twin sons, and I have a seven year old daughter. Okay, um, so you're in zone coverage and, completely. Yeah, and and my parenting philosophy is, you know, I don't believe in making my believe in teaching them. I believe in sharing with them. I believe in being incredibly open and honest and transparent with them, uh, with what I do and what I believe. Uh, but I most like I, I most believe in modeling behavior for them. So um, now I, I'm saying that keeping in mind the ages of my kids. So this is not, and this happens all the time on social. You know, people try to find an exception, and you know, hey, would you let your nine-year-old get tattoos? Uh, no, I would not let my nine-year-old get <laughs> tattoos because they're nine. But when they're 18, if they choose to get tattoos, and we've had a discussion about it, that will be a decision that I will let them make. And, you know, hey, would you let your nine-year-olds drop out of school? No, I'm not going to let my nine-year-olds drop out of school. But when my kids, you know, graduate from high school, if they choose to graduate from high school, college, I won't force them to go to college. So um, it, it's, it's all about the stages and the ages of what's appropriate. But, you know, I don't make my kids work out. 
Uh, they know that physical fitness is incredibly important to me. Uh, they know that I choose to eat healthy and, and be very active, uh, and I invite them to come do things, but I don't make them. And uh, to me, I want that desire to come from them, not from me, because I, in my belief, that will be the only thing that will be long-term and sustainable. Uh, so the first day uh, we were on vacation, mm -hmm. uh, I said I was going to go work out. I asked if they wanted to join me, and all three of them said no. They wanted to unwind and play on their iPads, which – you know, as if I try to put myself in the shoes of nine and seven year olds, I can't blame them a bit. <laughs> their first day of vacation, hey, let them do their thing. Right. Uh, and then the second day, you know, I said I'm going for a workout, and they chose to join me. Um, you know, and, and and one of the most important things I teach them is that they need to own the decisions that they make, and that the decisions they make consistently and their habits are what's going to determine their future happiness, their fulfillment, their success. Um, so a perfect example, my, my one son, Jack, really loves, bas really loves basketball. Mm -hmm. and he's already said at the age of nine that, you know, he would love to be a college basketball player one day, um, that that's important to him. And I said, that's wonderful. I think that's a great goal to have. But you have to realize every decision you make is either going to take you closer to being a college basketball player or it's going to take you further away. And if you want to play college basketball, then you need to do everything in your power to make as many decisions as possible, as consistently as possible, that are aligned with that goal. So uh, later that day, I simply said to him, I said, hey, buddy, you know, you chose to, to not work out. You chose to stay and play on your iPad, which was fine. That's your decision. But I just want to ask you, uh, which decision would have taken you closer to playing college basketball one day? And he smiled and said, yeah, I, I probably should have worked out. And I didn't say that to guilt him. I didn't say that to make him feel bad. I didn't say that to pressure him to the next day to do it. I just said it because I wanted him to have ownership over the decision. And it was a really good connected moment because he smiled and was like, you know, yeah, you're right, Dad. I probably should have worked out. Uh, and that ultimately influenced his behavior the next day because then he chose to work out. So, yeah, you know, but whether or not my son will be able to play college basketball is irrelevant. I just want when that time comes for him to be able to own the decision and look back and, and say, you know, I didn't quite make it as a college basketball player, uh, and here are the reasons. And to me, the only time someone will have regret in life is – when they realized they could have made other decisions, they chose not to, and then they didn't get the outcome they wanted. You know, if he, if he continues to make good decision after good decision and just is not good enough to play college basketball, that will be disappointing in the short term. But in the long term, he'll be at peace with that. Absolutely. Uh, it's, it's when he makes decisions. If, if he's the one that, that sabotages his own ability to be successful, I think that's when he would have some regret. So I'm just trying to teach these and I believe that modeling is one of the most effective ways to teach. Especially when you have that relationship, especially with your kids, when the people, when you're able to model good behavior and then ask the good follow-up questions going, hey, these are your goals. Is this what you're doing? Yes. And so, well, well, and you know, when you look at the modeling and, you know, uh, I, I certainly hope this doesn't lack humility or sound self-righteous because I don't mean it to be, but I, I have a really good life. You know, I, I'm healthy. I'm happy. I love what I do for a living. Uh, I enjoy the people that I get to work with and work for and connect with. Uh, I mean, uh, life is really good. And I know that on an unconscious level, my kids see that and go, man, my dad is happy. 
He likes his work. He enjoys working out. He likes eating healthy food. He enjoys reading and listening to podcasts. And, and I think unconsciously that's planting a seed in their mind that, well, hey, if I want to be happy and I want to be successful, then maybe I should be doing those types of things too. You know, it would be completely different. And, and people, unfortunately, um, and I, I don't want this to sound judgmental, but they model the opposite. You know, they, they, they go to a job every day that they can't stand and, you know, they, they choose not to develop and they just lay around and watch TV and eat junk food and they don't work out and they have all of these behaviors that contribute to them being miserable and now they're, they're modeling the exact opposite. So uh, to me, that's what's most important. And, and, you know, I would be living my life this way even if I didn't have kids. I mean, I, it's not like the only reason I exercise and read is because I'm trying to model for my kids. This is how I want to live my life. I'm just thankful it's in alignment with how I'm hoping my children choose to live their lives. Isn't and it if they don't, if they choose not to exercise and choose not to develop, that is going to be 100% on them, and there will be a consequence for that. And more likely, the consequence will be they won't have a happy and fulfilling and significant life. The natural consequences of decisions. Isn't it, yes. uh, isn't it amazing? I, was, I always think of this with because uh, my, my dad's an engineer. You know, he worked hard going to the office every day. It's the habits of our parents. Like, like I can see stuff that I'm doing that my dad did. Yes. And it's one of those where you're like with how you're modeling it to your kids where it's like, how are you modeling? Like, I don't say modeling, but like it's the habits of our parents that, you know, the cycle goes into us. And how are we going to, you know, push that cycle along or break the cycle if it's a bad habit? So, yes. One, one more. It, go ahead. It takes a process of unlearning. And and I've, I've gone through over the last five or six years uh, and done tremendous internal work to look back at everything that I was taught uh, and when I was being raised and what I learned from my parents and almost like line item by line item go, okay, is this something that I believe? And if so, why? Or is this something I don't believe? And if so, why? And what, what changes am I going to make? You know, it, it's that old adage that if you want to be truly happy and truly successful, then do more of what works and do less of what doesn't. And I mean, talk <laughs> about a basic principle, but right. there's so much truth to that. So, I went back and uncovered everything and go, okay, I was taught this as a child. Is this true? Is this something I believe? If so, then keep doing it. If not, then let's unlearn and try some different things. And, you know, I, I love my parents very much, but my parenting style is very, very different than the way I was raised. And this is not about right or wrong or good or bad. Uh, my parents did, absolutely did the best they could with the skills they had at the time. I have no doubt about that. Mm -hmm. um, but I view parenting very differently than the way my parents did, and and I'm okay with that, and I own that. And I've had discussions with them about it, and and really what it comes down to is awareness. Yeah. Uh, that That's probably hopefully what we can use to put a big bow tie on this conversation is the most important aspect is awareness. Are you aware of your, of your habits and your behaviors, and are you aware of the results that they yield, or are you just doing it? I mean, think how many people, uh, and I think you were kind of, of leading down this path, how many people raise their children the same way they were raised because that's all they know. That's, they're, they're not aware of anything else. They just think, oh, I guess this is how it's supposed to be done. And to me, that's, that's the death of, of any relationship or any team or any business is, well, that's the way we've always done it. 
You know, I can't stand that when that's an answer. Um, now, sometimes that's the way we've always done it. Yeah, it's been working great. So, yeah, you should keep doing it that way. Uh, but many times there's a better or more effective way or a slight nuance that can be tweaked. And we should all be open to that. And, you know, uh, I'll never stop evolving as a father. Uh, I don't believe for even one second that everything I know and I'm currently doing right now uh, is the best or is right. Uh, but it's what I'm aware of at present. And when I learn of better techniques or tools or, or ways to deal with my children, then I'll adopt those. So it's, it's, it's having that awareness. And now, you know, I'm aware when I say or do something and I probably could have said that or should have said that in a better way. I just own it and, and move on to the next time. So life is all about getting in these reps, Absolutely. being open to feedback, and then making these tweaks as we go along. So um, at this moment, I'm doing the best I can to be the best father I'm capable of. But I hope if you and I have a conversation a year from now, I'm doing an even better job then because that means my trajectory is going up. And the, the direction in which you're headed and the trajectory at which you're headed is far more important than wherever you currently are. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. Alan, if someone wanted to follow up with you, connect with you, you know, get a hold of this, your book or information you, or, uh, you put out there, what's the best way for them to do that? Uh, if they're interested in the book, they can go to raiseyourgamebook.com. Uh, there's all the information on there. There's some free goodies. Uh, they can have links to purchase. I mean, certainly uh, it's been my experience that, that most people buy books on Amazon now. So you can also just search for Raise Your Game and Amazon. Uh, or if you do like audiobooks, you can go to iTunes or Audible. Um, and if they're interested in the speaking or workshops or trainings uh, or anything else I've got cooking, they can go to allensteinjr.com. Uh, and I'm at Alan Stein Jr. on all the social platforms and, and certainly love engaging uh, with folks like you on there. So, yeah, I would I would love to be of service to anyone that, that feels I can help. Perfect. I'll, I'll put that out there. I'll put that in the description of for the podcast here, too. And I appreciate Alan. You do really need to spend the time. I, I really appreciate you making the time for someone like me just trying to start up a nice little fun podcast here. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thank you for all your support, Rob. You're a good man. All right. Thanks, Alan. Have a great one. I'll get this posted here in just a moment. Sounds good. All right. Later. Later. See you.